0: And welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie.
1: Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How's life treating you this week?
0: Well... I'm not stranded on a ship in the middle of the ocean by Australia, and I'm not being chased by the Gestapo.
1: So overall, things are going well. Well, <laughs> excellent news, excellent news all right. I'm in an extremely good mood this week for reasons which are, are personal and I'm not gonna bore our listeners with, but I am feeling extremely positive and I think we have two excellent stories for us to kick off with this week, which means we are gonna be covering The Transit of Venus and Resistance, so two entries from the Companion Chronicles range. And we're gonna start with the transit of Venus. So, Kev, would you care to give us a summary?
0: Sure. The first Doctor, Ian, and Barbara and Susan land on the ship, the Endeavor of Captain James Cook, where Ian befriends Joseph Banks, but not after uh, the TARDIS is lost with Barbara and Susan inside. As Ian and the Doctor sort of survive on the ship and Ian strikes up this friendship with naturalist Joseph Banks, Banks starts having weird behavior, talking about things from the future that he shouldn't know, and it, at one incident, pushing Ian overboard, but having no knowledge of doing these things. Ian begins to devolve the paranoia, and eventually it comes to a head, at which point it's diffused by a reunion with Barbara and Susan and the reveal that Banks' odd behavior was the influence of a combination of Susan's telepathic powers mixing with Barbara's fear for Ian's life. Uh, with the sort of misunderstanding resolved Ian and Banks live on, leave on good terms and there's sort of a new deepening of the relationship between Ian and Barbara
1: Fantastic, thank you very much So yes, we are in the third season of the Companion Chronicles and uh, this is the first one that we'll be covering uh, which is starring William Russell returning as Ian So how did you find this one?
0: Oh, I mean, it's a Jacqueline Rayner script, so I loved it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I will, will, i hard pressed to think of a Jacqueline Rayner script I don't love. Um, but yeah, I realized seeing that aloud, it's like, wow, this sounds kind of lame. Aloud, it's just there's misunderstandings just the way someone talks, and then it's all cleared up at the end. But it's so much more than that. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, plot-wise, there's not a lot going on, but like the poetry of the language here is so evocative. Like, this is so much more about us. And sort of the framing device is almost the sort of second person. You, the listener, are just sitting down with an older Ian Chesterton and listening to him narrate this story from his life. It's it's never clear who he is talking to, whether it's even inner monologue to Barbara to whoever. But it really does feel like he's sitting you down and telling you this story. And there's all of these lovely anecdotes from him as a teacher, from of him dropping in historical facts, and then all these poetic descriptions of like his nightmares and his fears and his paranoia. It's just all is such like a wonderful thing to listen to. I absolutely loved it.
1: Well, you'll get absolutely no argument from me at all. I thought this was glorious. I absolutely adored it. And I think one of the things that's really Kind of impressive about we've talked about um, we've talked about William Russell before on the podcast. I said this is the first time we have talked about it. I meant this is the first time in this season of the Companion Chronicles. We, we've obviously talked about him before in the podcast, but I think it's incredible how wonderful and kind of rich his performance has become. I don't think he's the best actor on the original series of Doctor Who. Neither is he the worst. I think he's 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 really good. But that kind of core Ian Barber thing is just you know it's something that that we all latch onto you know most fans love that kind of uh, Ian Barbara sort of relationship and you know it, I, the way that he's become so kind of able to put this texture this kind of richness into his performance i love the sound of his voice and this is beautiful kind of deep old man voice which is just incredibly kind of attractive to listen to and, and it, it just does draw you in. You're right, it's like a fireside kind of chat, or, you know, you can imagine him with a, a schooner of brandy in one hand whilst he sits back in a big kind of uh, wingback leather armchair and, and sort of relates his tales of, the you know, travels in time and space, and it's just glorious. It's wonderful to listen to him, this sort of rich, resonant voice bring these stories to life. Um, but that wouldn't be worth very much if the story itself didn't engage you, and you know, the thing about this story is, I think, it's very much not about the plot. Okay, we get a sort of fairly standard bit of kind of, uh, you know, historical... Uh, I've said standard, actually, that's not really true. Hartnell very rarely met people who were from history. You know, the Aztecs doesn't do it, and, and the massacre doesn't do it, and a lot of his historical stories aren't about kind of meeting pivotal figures. Um, I suppose the crusade does but that's a rare exception um, uh, and the so Romans in the reign of terror well <laughs> Sorry, even, but, but I, half I, half. yeah but yeah alright let's say it a, a different way it's not his default operating procedure right unlike um, it is for New Who Exactly. When we travel into history in YooHoo, it's almost always to meet somebody famous. It's a, it's a, you know, that's that's the mode it operates in. And, and pretty much from the sixth Doctor onwards that's true. But it's not particularly true of, of, of previous seasons. So okay, yeah, of course you're right about those ones. Absolutely accept that, but um, it's not really about the fact that we meet um, Cook, or about the fact that we we're we're present at the you know the landing at Botany Bay or whatever. It's about the texture. It's about the way that Ian mm-hmm. is reacting. It's about all the the details of of um, what he's going through during the course of this voyage, and that whole thing about the fact that this story spools out over weeks and months it's that's such a Hartnellian feature you know you don't get that anymore you certainly don't get it with the new series you don't really get it towards the end of the original series either but that's such a a beautiful thing because it allows the development of the character and what they're going through it's not just a, a an in punch out it, it it lets you know the emotions build it lets the reactions build and, and the reality of the situation kind of sink and even over a play which is only an hour long that remains true. And I love all those kind of textures and details. And, and William Russell is just so, so fabulous at being able to bring them all to life.
0: It's very clear the story originated from Jacqueline Rayner really wanted to write about the Endeavor and the 1700s and Cook and Banks. And then just thought of a story around that. And just a simple, and like I said, it's sort of, well, not an in and out story, but like a very uh simple story to sort of wrap it around but just include all this history it really does it's like the original doctor who uh sort of manifesto of wanting to be educational it's really in that mode and there is so much texture to all of these sort of historical facts and dates and like you said like they have the landing of botany bay and all this talk about new holland and originally australia and what people did not know whether it was a continent or a chain of islands and just and you learn so much listening to the story and it's just fantastic it's it just enriches the whole world around it and all you need is sort of that richness and detail and that strong of a character hook in William Russell's performance and a sort of centering of Ian in the story and you just have something that's fantastic
1: I think what's really impressive is that we have come across Um, a number of stories in the past where the relationship between Ian and Barbara has proven, you know, really pivotal to the story. We've Mm -hmm. covered the first Doctor Adventures, at least a couple of box sets in anyway. um, And they tend to lean quite heavily on that kind of ian Barbara relationship, Mm -hmm. completely understandably. I, I certainly don't mean that as criticism. What is surprising, I think, by this stage is so the number of stories that we've covered that lean on that is sort of relatively large, but there's still plenty of mileage in it. It's not one of those mm-hmm. things that runs out of steam. And, and, like, Ian's... Like, there's that beautiful moment where Ian has this kind of almost surreal fantasy about Barbara being at the bottom of the sea and turning into coral, mm-hmm. and then her soul kind of lifting up and and, and flying. And it's it's both something which is completely consistent with the character and the way that the character would react, and at the same time is something that we would never in a million years have got in 1963 or 1964. It's a wonderful kind of bit of, uh, of Jack Rayner writing, um, you know, describing Barbara's eyes. I think it's turning to pearls and all this kind of stuff. And it's so it's such an evocative way of bringing to life what it is ian is going through and the fact that they they can still get mileage out of this this relationship and and you know just the very genuine and real concerns of people that 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 love each other whether at this point they love each other simply as friends or as colleagues or whether it's a romantic relationship by this point well that will always be up to debate for between fans and that's that's part of the fun of this relationship but that attachment, that love, that that compassion that lies between the two characters is really sort of deeply um, milked here. Not milk's the wrong word; that sounds critical. It's really deeply um, used here um, to, to to put real drama onto what it is Ian is going through, and it's just magnificent.
0: Yeah, the Ian barber relationship—it's very special, I think, to Doctor Who canon. It's like this; it's the they're they're the original companions. Uh, give or take Susan, the original Earth Companions, at least you can't, you have to say, and their relationship is also sort of, it sort of becomes this lodestone of like this very pure uh, ship to use a much more modern term than the 1960s in a Doctor Who fiction, and like, and other paired-off companions or characters, like, I mean, the Doctor Romana, you can, they hung out a lot and I know there's a lot of fandom around that, and... In between there's Ben and Polly, and we'll talk about them later, but canon is so mixed on what happens to them. And so not really until Amy and Rory do you have a companion pair that milked a similar dynamic. And then because it's more modern, it can be more modern about their relationship. But there is that sort of air of reverence, I think, around Ian and Barbara, where they are, like, like I said, these sort of original companions and this original sort of core relationship that is almost sort of the proving ground that Doctor Who can do relationships so well, not just romantic ones, but like platonic ones, friendship ones, like all spectrum of relationships between doctors and companions and companions with each other. I think that is such a very precious sort of lodestone in the fandom. I'm just remembering that for Doctor Who Magazine and that ongoing, their ongoing comics for the 50th anniversary had a totally Ian and Barbara centric story where they met the 11th Doctor and it ed- ended with their wedding, um, and I think that was just such a, like a joyous thing. Like this is the fiftieth anniversary of Doctor Who, and to center it on Ian and Barbara, I think just shows how important they are to a lot of people.
1: Well, it absolutely does, and I think I think even with uh, Amy and Rory, there is something really unique and special about that ian Barber relationship. It's a very fragile thing. I think it's very, mm-hmm. I think it's very delicate and, and all the better for that. It's one of those things where, um, you know, what isn't said is infinitely more important than, than what is. So you can take a scene like the opening of the Romans and, and sort of say it's post or it could just be friends larking about in the sun or there's just this, you know, multiplicity of interpretations. Um, and it's important, I think, that that isn't kind of overplayed. Um, it, you don't want to dig too deep into right. it because it is this this fragile thing and, and um, it would be easy to break it. And I think it's actually um, a real sort of triumph of Doctor Who that that hasn't happened. Like you mentioned that story and it is uh, in, in Doctor Who magazine and it's delightful. It absolutely is. But that's kind of as far as you can go with it. It's the same as that off-handed reference, I think it's in one of the Sarah Jane adventures about um, about Ian and Barbara never aging or something. And it's just an off-the-cuff comment. Um, and that's fine, that doesn't break anything. And you don't want to get too far into that because it is this kind of unique and kind of perfectly preserved thing. And the relationship um, between the characters and between the actors as well, you know, um you know Jacqueline Hill is phenomenally brilliant actress and she's amazingly good at being able to sort of bring Barbara to life which is why this is such a a pivotal relationship in Doctor Who um but Ian Russell uh, sorry (laughs) I'm Ian Russell William Russell even Ian Chesterton is obviously a key part of that as well and it is just this beautiful fragile thing that that kind of doesn't exist anywhere else like Ian and Ian and Barbara don't have the same relationship that that um, that Rory and Amy have. They have a spiky relationship and they fall out and they you know they're going to get divorced at one mm-hmm. stage and then they get back together again and, da, 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 and that's all great. I'm not I'm not in any way sort of uh, attacking that. I think it's fabulous. I love Rory and Amy. But it's different. There isn't another relationship like Ian and Barbara and that's I think why it's possible to come back to it and and not have it uh, run out of steam.
0: I really agree about that it being a fragile thing, and that being such a wonderful quality to it. Uh, like like Amy and Rory, like you're right, it is a spiky relationship, and there's so much drama foisted on them. It makes it a very different thing. Whereas, I mean, part of this, it was the 1960s. I don't know if they could have gotten away with a very open relationship where they like made out in episodes or anything, but it was. I, I, I we can't know unless there's some extant interview I don't know about from writers of the time saying how they wrote the relationship. But that ambiguity is so wonderful. And even with, like I said, the comic stories that they get married, or the Sarah Jane Smith references, Dr. Who Can being what that is, that can all be easily dismissed if you want it to be something different. And I think that ambiguity works so well in just being this sort of very, like you said, fragile, preserved thing that you can Prismatic in a way—you can look through it and see a lot of different things through the lens. I, it's, it is very unique, and I don't think we can get something like that again. Well, in a post Russell T Davies rival era where everything is so melodramatic, and that's like I, I also I agree with you. Like you said, it's good for what it is. I don't want to be down on that. It's gotten some great stories when you can be like open about like relationship status and things like that. But at the same time, there is something very precious about their relationship, and I think. Jacqueline Rayner is a big fan of what we're all talking about to get it back to the story. Like it that shines so through in her work in this last scene that it's all about, like nothing is said out loud what how they feel for each other and yet it all comes through in just the way Russell performs it and the little bits of words they say.
1: Yeah, I think that's it exactly. But also what we do get here as well is the relationship between Ian and the Doctor. And I think it's interesting the way that, um, that that's lent on because it's not necessarily the most obvious approach, but by which I mean, I think the most obvious approach would have been to kind of have them sort of be spiky and difficult throughout the whole course mm-hmm. Of the play, And then once they find the TARDIS, they kind of, they reconcile it and, and, and sort of make up and, and all the rest of it. But actually, it's surprisingly more... Supportive isn't quite the right word, but the Doctor is being very rational in a way that we associate with the Hartnell Doctor. And um, we expect to associate with Ian. We expect him to be kind of rational, scientific, you know, thorough... Uh, and yet he keeps coming out with these kind of outlandish ideas that um, you know there's an alien on board or there's a mind reading going on or a time traveller and like all of these kind of explanations which sound increasingly ludicrous but which also make perfect sense within a Doctor Who context um, and which the Doctor keeps kind of patting down. But interestingly, it's not a, a sort of spiky Hartnell that's doing it. He see. I mean, firstly, William Russell is so good at doing. William Hartnell. He's great at Mm -hmm. doing that. And it's not an impression exactly but he just captures the essence of Hartnell. I know we'll mention that again but I just have to say it in passing now. Um, But there's also that thing whereby the way that their relationship functions here, like that scene where Ian finds the Doctor with a tear in his eye because he's concerned about uh, Susan, is exactly what I mentioned earlier, which is it's both completely consistent with the way that hartnell was incredibly defensive about um about susan and the way that his doctor was incredibly uh, protective of her but at the same time it's not necessarily something that we would ever really have seen not even with the big speech at the end of uh, dalek invasion of earth or the opening of the rescue when the doctor is kind of reflecting back on on susan's departure so it's again it's that perfect kind of balance between what we've had and what we've had not and and um and it's just a more kind of um compassionate approach i suppose and i really like that i like that that there is obviously some friction between them because it's even in the doctor there always is but it doesn't lean too hard into that in fact it's it's very subtle about the way that it uses that and the, the the way that they're both experiencing uh the same feeling of loss um and that's something which actually Unites them rather than being the most sort of more obvious dramatic wedge between them. I think that's just really phenomenal writing on on behalf of Jack Rayner.
0: Right, and again, a lot of the Doctor characteristics here could only have been done with the first Doctor in this era. Um, like like you said, I think any Doctor from the second Doctor on would hear the vastest hint of this thing. This is an alien, and immediately jump into action and start investigating, <laughs> and waving on a sonic screwdriver and doing everything they can to. Prove there's an alien on board, and they have to stop him. So it is very (laughs) funny to see a very non-engaging doctor just trying, almost like trying to find excuses not to do his job. And and then I think the other very unique thing about the first doctor is, it's he's so like you're right, he's not like butting heads in the whole story, but at the same time, this takes place at the end of the century and before the reign of terror, as like sort of the wiki notes it's he is in the midst of trying to throw them out at this point like he lands on the ship and is like all right it's earth close enough get out and he winds <laughs> up not doing that but it's uh yeah it's it's a place where he's still trying to get rid of ian and barbara as opposed to literally every companion after this where he wants to spend as much time with them as he can
1: yeah and it's it's Again, it's something that just the way that um, Jack Rayner is able to use that kind of friction, um, but in a way which allows the the Doctor to remain sympathetic. I mean, the whole thing, Mm -hmm. the whole reason this adventure exists is because he's not sympathetic, because he is throwing them out. But he still remains, for the vast majority of this sort of play, a very kind of sympathetic and, and understanding character. And that's a really... Difficult line to watch, especially with a Hartnell doctor, of all doctors, you know, it's very easy, uh, even in something like this, for him to kind of uh, tip over into unsympathetic. So, yeah, again, it's just really a tribute to, to her skills, and I think also, um, again, to, to William Russell's performance, that the doctor doesn't come across that way, you know, um, William Russell is, like I said, he's really good, really, really good at doing the Hartnell doctor, um, and... Like the softer Hartnell Doctor is obviously, uh, you know, a, a feature, you know, post-Ian and Barbara. That's something that we come into sort of towards the end of season two, season three. So, but there was still plenty of that. There was still plenty to warm to during that kind of, the, the sort of first season and a half. And, and that kind of comes through. And again, it's that benefit of having this play out over a very long time you know weeks and months at sea it's not just a few days so there's time for that relationship to develop so even if the doctor was really angry with them and wanting to throw them off the ship firstly susan stopped him of course that's good writing susan would always do that um but secondly it gives the space for that side of the um conflict between them to kind of fade down you know they're stuck together they're the only two people who understand each other and that relationship has time to sort of grow and flourish over the the months they spend at sea together. So that's, again, those are just really smart choices that are being made.
0: Yeah, it's part of why Hartnell is one of my favorite doctors is because those sort of contradictions in his personality, the coldness and the warmness, the, um, the trying to sort of get rid of companions as much as he's sort of slowly realizing he needs them and that character development like, we're never going to get that with the Doctor again, because the show now has to keep going and the Doctor has to be the lead. So, I and I think, like you said, Rainer writes that so well. She totally understands that era, where the Doctor is in that moment, and the sympathetic nature to heart now that is so different from the more heroic sympathetic nature of the other Doctors. It's really fascinating. And I think those sort of character tensions can carry a story where, again, not much happens.
1: Well, yeah, and again, obviously it's the nature of being stuck at sea that there is only going to be a limited number of events which can take place without it uh, seeming contrived. And um, since we have comparatively little in the way of action, it's really important as well uh, that the other characters we spend time with are, you know, worth spending time with. And and that's the other place where this play really comes through. You know, um, Ian Hallard is simply great as Joseph Banks. He's a very likeable, easy to enjoy character um, but there's enough there that when we are asked questions, when Ian gets pushed overboard at the, the sort of cliffhanger at the end of the first part or whatever there's just enough there that you think ah, yeah, it could be we don't really know this person. And like even if you're aware of him historically, yeah you know, there's plenty of room for maneuver because, well, you know, it's, it's the nature of characters of the 17th century that we're not going to know everything about them. So there's enough space within that kind of characterization whereby uh, we can doubt his motives. We don't necessarily understand. Maybe he is really driven. Maybe he's obsessive. Maybe that argument Ian has about, you know, what's the point of knowledge if there's nobody left to understand it or whatever the line is. Maybe he doesn't care, maybe he is that driven And eventually we get a, an explanation Not necessarily the strongest explanation If I had to find one little thing to say Like, um, you know, residual energy from the sense sphere Isn't necessarily the strongest <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, sort of denouement for a story but it's fine it works perfectly fine I'm really not going to criticize it Um, but yeah it's it's a lovely performance it's it's a great character and yeah there's enough space in it to to understand that there's the potential for threat there even if that threat is eventually coming from somewhere else
0: yeah you really feel for the guy by the end because it's all done without his knowing and he's just been very freaked out by Ian the whole time but I think that really works he's right how performance is so good at conveying the sort of guilelessness, uh, just this open friendship with Ian and the open hurt when Ian says these things that he doesn't understand at all. And then at the same time, when he's doing a sort of possession of Susan slash Barbara, he is menacing, like it is like this very emotional and sort of terrifying performance. <laughs> it really works at keeping you on edge. You don't know what's going on with him until you get the sort of denouement. It's yeah. Like, it's another fantastically calibrated element in the story.
1: It would be a character that I would be sort of happy to return to. I don't think there's any particular reason to, and I can't imagine Mm -hmm. that that will be something that ever happens. But it would be something, yeah, I'd be quite happy to go back to that character and spend a bit more time. And that really is a a sort of testament to the strength of the writing and a a sort of strength of of the performance as well. And, yeah, that, that hurt. Yeah, you're quite right to mention that because it really does... Come across. It's no. It, that, that's one of the nice things about a story like this, and it's one of the nice things about the Hartnell era as well, is that it's not necessary to have, a, you know, a bad guy. There's no. There's no bad guy in this story. There's no enemy to be defeated. There's no monsters to hunt. There's no megalomaniac twirling their moustaches in the background or, or you know, hamming it up for all the worth. It's just. It's just an unfortunate, an unfortunate series of events. Um, it's, it's, it's lovely to have a story that doesn't feel the need to rest drama on conflict where it's not necessary. And again, once again, that's obviously the skill of, of Jack Rayner that she's able to do that. Um, but the story doesn't feel less dramatic for not having that kind of traditional adversary. It doesn't feel less compelling for not having somebody for the Doctor and Ian to face off against. Indeed, quite the opposite. It gives enough space in the performance uh, and enough space in the script for, you know, the details of the characterization to come through. And that's, that's really ultimately why this all comes together.
0: I think that's a perfect way to sum up this story. Uh, and so why don't we move on to Resistance? Let's see, I'll take the summary to myself. Uh, Resistance is the story of the second Doctor, Ben, Polly, and Jamie landing in occupied France in 1944. Uh, Jamie and Ben are quickly separated from the Doctor and Polly. I believe either Ben gets captured and Jamie tries to rescue him or the other way around, it doesn't matter. What matters is the Doctor and Polly run into a pilot who is also on his way trying to leave occupied France as well as a farm girl, Jacqueline, who is part of an underground resistance chain that will help get the three of them to safety. Polly recognizes the pilot as be, potentially being her uncle, Randolph Wright, but and that causes complications as they sort of follow the chain to a train that will take them to England. Uh, Polly makes a choice to leave the Doctor, Ben, and Jamie behind and go on the train with her uncle, where she then discovers that it's actually a man posing as her uncle, a German agent who is trying to use Randolph Wright's identity to smuggle himself into England as a spy. Polly outs him, uh, shoots him, and then makes the other side with the doctor having rescued Ben and Jamie, are waiting for her to take her back to her time.
1: Fantastic, thank you very much. I think the most surprising thing about Resistance is that i probably listened to it before. I remembered nothing about it whatsoever. Um, and really, it was included here as, a, as an excuse to talk about Polly. But, um, which not not something we get very much opportunity to do. But it, I was really amazed by how good this was. I just, I didn't have any particular expectations of it being sort of good or bad. There was nothing in it that I suddenly thought, oh, well, this this will definitely work out. Oh, God, not this. I just, I no memory of this story and that's really unjust because it's it's pretty strong i'm not going to say that it's flawless um it's definitely not but it's it's a thoroughly entertaining piece of doctor who that was i don't know maybe it's just me i just i didn't remember this and i really should have done because i thought it was great i'm in the
0: same boat yeah i mean i have my I have a little Google Doc where I just give a little like letter grade rating to each big finisher to listen to them. And this was sitting at a B+, but I had no memory of it. And uh, like you said, I picked the story so we could talk about Polly, and it's like, oh, well, I, I must have liked it at some point five years ago or so. So that's, uh, that's that. But yeah, this works so well. Uh, I think Polly, like Emma Willis, is so good in this story. And the only detail really came to me as I listened. it, I was like, oh yes, yeah, this is about her uncle and her sort of history with World War II, but this really digs into sort of how people who lived in the 60s would have had like these fresh generational scars in the war. It sort of digs into Polly's own inner sort of doubt of her status as a companion in a way that was really moving to me. And at the same time, it's like a pretty solid World War II resistance story. I mean, there's tons of those in fiction. It's World War II, one of the most covered eras of history ever in fiction. But, and so obviously Resistance in Occupied France, It's a, I wouldn't be shocked if there was like five of the Doctor Who stories that covered that same material, even if I can't think of one right now. But it doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. It just goes through these motions as just more of the staging ground for Polly to sort of reckon with all of these sort of character traits about herself and her own sort of place in this Doctor Who narrative.
1: I think that's the thing that impressed me the most about it is the fact that it was able to find the space to have a character like this um be talked about and for it not to just be kind of like the default character traits like i think the way that this is centered on um you know i think well Okay, let's start that sentence again. I think the way that Polly is often regarded, as far as Doctor Who is concerned, is as sort of nothing. I don't think she's really remembered that much. And that's kind of true of Ben as well, I suppose. But, I mean, it goes without saying that they're kind of, by default, eclipsed both by the arrival of Jamie and, and by the arrival of the second Doctor. And so they do kind of get lost in the shuffle. And I think centering the characterization of Polly... On that impression is really a clever move you know yeah what is the point of this character why is she here okay well let's make that kind of part of her you know her psychology make that part of why she's she's asking questions about herself and what what's she contributing to in a, in a sort of textual sense what's she contributing to their uh, journey in a sort of paratextual sense. what's she actually contributing to the, the sort of the, the ongoing text of Doctor Who Um, And having those questions be asked in that kind of way is a really smart piece of writing on behalf of Steve Lyons. It's, it's, It's such a useful way of looking at the character. It's giving us a lens onto that character, which is genuinely useful it's not just putting a character through the ringer it's not just you know reiterating the familiar beats such as they are with a character like polly and it really yeah it gives us insight into the character in a way that i think is all 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 too rare when it comes to polly
0: i think the story has a bit of meta text to it but it's one that doesn't annoy me which i feel like is rare when you get like too winky with like fandom and things like that but there is a Explicit reference to a scene from I believe the moon base, if not the tenth planet, where Polly makes coffee for everyone. It may be an even a recurring thing. But I mean that Steve Lyons directly tackles it as like with Polly's sort of inner monologue of am do I just exist to make coffee for everyone? Am I, is that my only role? And what keeps me from being cheeky is that it is like an actual examination of this sort of thing from her perspective. And I think it does get into the heart of something that is like true for so much of Doctor Who of this era, where I don't want to cast aspersions in the casting process. I mean, you can listen to so many Big Finner stories and just watch these the television stories as well and tell, oh, ev- almost every Doctor and Manian cast is a good actor. But so often with these character like characters in sort of the poly genre, you're I'm also thinking about like sort of your Perry's or your Mel's. Uh, the, there's Tegan, like there's these characters, maybe not Tegan so much, but like characters who aren't given so much to do on screen. But then Big Finish can find an angle to them like this that makes them stand apart. Like where these sort of, I mean, predominantly male writers from 63 to 89 don't know how what to do with one besides have her be the one who makes coffees or scream at the alien. This is the big benefit of Big Finish, whenever they usually initially when they get to sink their teeth into a companion for the first time that hasn't been developed as well like what are the upper limits that this actor can bring and what are the, what details we can comb from the TV stories that exist and flesh them out to make them actual character traits. And that's, i mean, like, like I said, we've seen it with Perry and Mel and now seeing it with Polly always just like an impressive feat of writing to just really flesh out these characters in a way no one thought to do before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also doing it in a story, which is kind of like you said, like there's, plenty of World War II um, sort of Doctor Who stories if you want to take anything from uh, Curse of Fenric to uh, Victory of the Daleks to Terence Dix's um, uh, Second New Adventures. Uh, you know, there's, there's no shortage of it. And like, I, I must admit, going into this, when I was saying, like, I had no expectations, that's absolutely true. But then you think, well, that's going to be a World War Two story. You think, oh, okay. It's, it's not exactly untravelled ground, is it? But, I mean, it finds a way in. And, like, the... Um, whole uh, sort of familial relationship angle could have been i suppose it is a slightly no not cliche that's way too strong but i suppose it's maybe a slightly obvious way of, of sort of feeding into like the moment polly sort of thinks to herself oh didn't i have an uncle or someone who was involved you immediately know where the story is going to go but like the like transit venus it's not really about that those are the plot beats which get things moving and there has to be at least a little bit of action for Polly to um, have a way of sort of justifying her presence within the crew but again it's about insp- exploring her interiority it's about you know the way that we come to understand this companion and you know in the hall of Doctor Who there are few characters or companions that are as underanalyzed as Polly There's maybe Ben, but even Ben's been recast now. You know, even he's turning up in stories um, where, um, you know, Polly isn't. And Annika Wills, I mean, she's done Big Finish before, of course. She's been Charlie's mum, and she was great. We both praised her to the hilt, and I think absolutely deservedly so. But it's really great to hear her step back into the character of Polly, the one that she's actually known for, and still be able to bring this character to life. And some of the little details in the way that um, Steve Lyons characterises her, I think is what really makes it work. Like, There's one, I don't know why this one stuck with me particularly, there's plenty of examples of it, but there's one moment where she describes her adventures as far out. And that's such a, it's, it's really inconsequential the way she says it. She, it's just something like, and I've had all these far out adventures that nobody would be able to understand or whatever. And it's completely glossed over, but it's exactly how a character from the kind of like the mid to late 60s would speak oh far out man yeah exactly and he gets those tiny little kind of character details um, that that place that character in a time but but crucially he doesn't lean on them Steve Lyons doesn't overemphasize them and that's like like you said that there's the um, there's a degree of metaness in this and but it's not too heavily leaned on it's not suffocating which metafiction can of often be. And it's the same with those little beats. Just using a line like, oh, oh, that's far out. It's not lingered on. It's just a fact of the way that that character would speak. And that's exactly the right way to kind of add those details into the character and add those details into the way that the the actor can then perform them. And, And it's just, it's so well handled.
0: Right. And I think, like, what this story is, is the story of Polly sort of coming to him with, like, bravery and taking an action and about, like... An episode and a half of the story is her not taking action, her or trying to with like the pitchfork or whatever, but then sort of not sort of fully get, being able to get the win, as it were. Um, but she, yeah, she manages to this final act of empathy to reach out to her uncle and then figure it out on her own, and it's like this very it's sm- much, much smaller, active thing. Like she was never one to sort of punch someone or get into a fight or anything like that, but the only active thing I can think she her doing on a TV show is in the moon base where she comes up with a chemical that dissolves Cybermen. Um, but beyond that, I can't think of anything else that really spotlighted Polly as sort of this more active force in Doctor Who stories. But this one is sort of smart to sort of play into that, have that part of her self doubt, and then have a part of her character growth as she does this sort of defined action of leaving the doctor at the end to be with her family. And then instead, what turns out to be is this defined action that saves Jacqueline's life by um, outing a traitor and managing to, when the chips are sort of down, overcoming him. Through a very clever piece of like deduction, Um, this German spy knew everything except uh, Polly's own existence. So I just think that's such a smart way to play it. And like you said, I'm speaking of the German spy, uh, yeah, you're right, the relative involved in it, I mean, that's such an old trope, even for Doctor Who, a course, did that with Ace, and
1: just
0: a dozen more examples, um, but here, the twist got me this time, as it I know it did last time, with him being a spy, it is a very clever twist, and you really don't expect it until the last moment.
1: No, and it's, it's it's hidden enough. I mean, it's the cliffhanger. The big reveal is the cliffhanger. And that's fine. I mean, if you have... Again, I, I, I don't... I, I think this is sort of generally true for both of these stories. And I know it's a point I've made before about Companion Chronicles. But I don't think they need a cliffhanger. I don't think the yeah. story needed to be split into two stories. So having, like, the big reveal. Oh, my God, it's her uncle. You know, whatever. It it, it, it doesn't need that push the story i think actually would be a little bit more successful if it, if it if it didn't have it because it doesn't need that kind of the artificiality of a cliffhanger if that's not too pretentious a way to say oh, yeah. it. it 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 just it, it just needs to have this okay here's the reveal oh look it's her family member okay it's not a massive surprise but fine and then the story can get on with it by having it as the cliffhanger it kind of over emphasizes it in a way that you know like you said is, is pretty typical in Doctor Who. This isn't this isn't exactly the first time we've come across it. So that's that's a slight shame. But saying that, you know, once we get past it, it, it works fine. The, the 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 sort of switcheroo works fine and and I like the fact I, I again it's a sort of fairly minor thing. But I like the fact that about halfway through the episode it's sort of we kind of reach that point where um, Um, you know they're at the station they've worked their way through the market and they've got their way to the um, they've got their way to the the, the train and the story sort of basically is over and and it looks like for all the world the Doctor is going to be able to persuade Polly to go back to the TARDIS and once they've done that they're going to fly off into the next kind of uh, adventure and that's not what happens. Instead, she jumps on the train. She follows the pilot. She gets stuck into the whole thing. And and, and the story finds kind of a, a, like a second wind where you're not kind of expecting it to really do that. And it's not a big... It's not a big thing. I don't know why I liked it so much. I just... I find it... It made me smile. Maybe I'm I've, in, I've like I said before, I'm in a terribly good mood today, and maybe so. Maybe it just hit me in the right place when I was listening to it. But um, I really liked the way that the story was able to kind of give itself that kind of little extra jolt just when you think it's all over.
0: No, I mean I don't think it's just your good mood. I mean I'm not in a bad mood, but I'm in a more neutral mood. But I still, um, still really enjoyed the story. And I think you're right about the Second Wind. I mean the story up until that point is very procedural and follow each chain of the resistance line link to get to the train to England. And there's an incident here, and there's something you got to do here, in this farmhouse, in this underground bunker. And you got to make the passports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's steps along the way, but it does follow a chain to sort of, like Transitive Venus, a simplistic plot to sort of background the more character stuff going on in the foreground. But that twist where Polly runs away from the Doctor, and then we have the multiple twists after that, all in quick succession. Like that is, it does give it that second wind. It's the most exciting the story has been the whole time. And it works so well as sort of almost lulling you into security of, oh, like Transit of Venus, this is going to be a simpler story, more character-focused, but then suddenly it goes in unexpected directions. You don't really know what to expect, and it's good. Like I said, as predictable as that first big cliffhanger twist is, the much more subtle twist but even larger for the story of her uncle not being her uncle, uh, is, comes at a very nice surprise, like a little knife between the ribs. It's just really good. It's just really sly on Steve Lyons' part to sort of stick that in there and give the story a jolt right when it needs to be. And then you have this um, very emotional, like like the doctor needs to convince Polly to come back. And I think that's important. Otherwise, her character arc does not have a button. And what the Doctor says about her being destined to do great things and having to be vague about it, but still saying, I took a quick peek and I know I need to bring you back. That's just so moving. Like, it honestly brought me into a little bit of tears this morning. It was so nice and sweet. And I really appreciated it.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I I think the way that the story is able to deliver on those emotional moments without overselling them is again really one of the strengths of of the writing here i think um for all obviously uh, polly's our focus here we don't really spend any meaningful time with with ben or, or jamie or at least nothing worth talking about but i think the way that steve lyons is able to kind of evoke troughton and that doctor is very successful it's very easy to imagine sort of a very quiet scene between Patrick Triton mm-hmm. and Annika Wills, um, where he just, like, quietly uh, takes her to one side and, and, and has those very kind of small, beautiful little moments that the second Doctor is able to deliver, and one of the reasons that we love Triton so much, and then kind of, you know, okay, fine, and then we step into the TARDIS and off we go. It's, it's, it's a really nice evocation of the Doctor, and I think not often one that is really done that much with the second Doctor... I really like the fact that um, Annika Wills doesn't try and do like a, a Trouton impression. She just she just says the lines kind of with the in the emotional way that Trouton would say it. Again, if that's not too pretentious. Um, but you know when we get Fraser Hines doing like second Doctor stories, he does a Trouton impression. He's extremely good at it. But it's good to see that that's not the only approach to kind of evoking these kind of past doctors who aren't with us anymore. And I think Annika Wills gives a phenomenal performance throughout the whole of this. We've heard, I, you know, we've talked about her a lot, but I just, I really want to emphasize how good she is here. And also, sort of, um, as, a, as a sort of extension of that, how frustrating it is that she was wasted so much in, in mm-hmm. the original series and how we don't have that much with her. You know, she hasn't done that much big finish, um, which is a great shame. Um, because she just knocks it out of the park here. She's such a strong performer, Um, and it's the way that she's able to kind of evoke the Troughton Doctor without just doing an impression. You know, she's not just great at doing Polly. She's great at bringing... She's good at doing like bringing across um, Jamie and Ben as well, but they're they're barely in this, and they don't need to be in this, so that's fine. Uh, But it's just... It's really a testament how strong she is as a performer that she's a, cause Trouton is such a difficult doctor um, to evoke because Trouton is such a unique actor um, that to do it well takes real skill. And that's what Annika Wills has, she, that's what she brings.
0: Uh, real skill, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and yeah, I think on that sort of last note where the doctor says she's destined for great things, again, like the Ian of our relationship, continuity is split on this matter. You have things that might reinforce that word, things that might contradict it if you go into every short story and audio and book and everything. But I think what's important is that it's ambiguous. Like, it doesn't, if it nails down the fifth potential future for Polly, that's you can just throw that away or pick the one you like. But the ambiguity that Steve Lines puts into it of, you are destined for great thing, it, it comes so much more to hold on to in that sense by saying less. It becomes like a much more emotional and meaningful thing to say rather than another footnote for the TARDIS wikia. And I really enjoy, I just think it's such a smart move when you're dealing with sort of older companions is a sort of, as these sort of older companions were less fleshed out than they would be later on, to sort of keep them in a sort of ambiguous zone and leave it up to this sort of fan interpretation. Like, even fan interpretation feels like a dirty way of saying it. This, like, it's tasteful ambiguity in more sense. Like, you know what I mean? It's not what canon do you want. It's this more emotion do you want. And I think that emotional component is handled so well.
1: Yeah, I do know exactly what you mean. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's, it's you know. It's easy to say, um, you know, oh, you're, you're destined for great things, but you know, it's not followed up with. And you'll be prime minister one day, or you'll cure cancer, or you know, something really like cloying and, and overegged like that. It would be really easy to sort of fall into that kind of uh, that kind of trap. But just it's much more, I think, about the fact that the doctor has faith, and I think he had. I I think what's important is that he had that faith prior to kind of having a, you know, a sneaky peeky at her future. Um, so it, all that all, all that did, all looking at her future did, was confirm what he already thought, which is that she's fabulous and that she's great and that she's going to do great things. Um, and again, it's a delicate line to walk, but the fact that it's not that kind of ham-fisted, um, you know, you'll go on to change the world and solve, I don't know, global warming or some other... Thing, you know, whatever. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a delicate little thing, but um, it's something that again, Steve Lyons gets exactly right, and and that's sort of true throughout this play. Really, those 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 moments which could become um, a little bit cliche or a little bit overbearing, every time one of those kind of rears its head, like Steve Lyons knows how to avoid it. He knows how to avoid stepping on the on the traps, um, and it just made this such a pleasure. Again. Like I know, I know it's how we started this, but it was this was just such a pleasure. I didn't, I just didn't expect it, and and it was fabulous. I just I can't recommend it enough. Well, I think that is just the ah,
0: fantastic way to sum it up and end it on. Yeah, of Venus and resistance, two fantastic companion chronicles. Uh, with that sort of wrapped up, I guess we can go to recommendations.
1: Uh, JG, what do you have this week? So I have a. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say like a guarded recommendation um i i'm going to sort of recommend something which i think is interesting rather than great um i think that's the way i'm going to put it so i, I it's it's uh, falcon and the winter soldier um the marvel tv series um and it's just concluded um, a couple of days before we recorded this uh, i guess a, a, a week or two um before since this will post and <laughs> edit that was incredibly clumsy edit it's uh just concluded a day or two before we recorded this so that'll be a week or so uh before uh, this posts and it's a really interesting series without i think ever i don't think it's perfect um so it has that in, in common with wandavision but it's a really <laughs> i'm just gonna say more patronizing than i mean it to it's a really good try there are certain things that i'm not qualified to talk about Let's get that out of the way first. So, I am a, a white, middle aged Scottish person. So, there's a limited amount I can really speak to in terms of like the, the sort of black American experience. So, from that side, there's not a lot I can say on that. What I can say, I think, is that there's a really sincere effort to try and address those kind of issues. And it's like I said it's a limited ability for me to say whether they're successful certainly I know that some people have reacted very strongly and very positively to it I think some of the drama does struggle a little bit I think particularly in the middle um, that the, it, it sags slightly which is a hard thing to say for a, a series which is only six episodes long um, but uh, there's some really great performances. I will watch Sebastian in anything I think he's great yeah, he just thoroughly thoroughly enjoy his performance and the whole sense that um the there's a whole momentum behind it which is both of like the mcu and also slightly distinct from the mcu as well and i think that's one of the things that um is most successful about it it's not just uh like particularly the first episode is really tries to sell itself on kind of being mcu button tv so we have a massive big kind of fight uh you know as as the falcon is is careening between these kind of massive cliffs in a foreign country and we have a like a buddy cop thing going on and on all that kind of stuff but actually it kind of backs away from that relatively um quickly and and it becomes something which is a little bit more um detailed i suppose I, i i think it is I think it'll be a very interesting show to kind of revisit um, but saying that i think it it's suffered i think the biggest problem it has i realize i'm rambling here but that's okay you must be used to that by now um, i think the biggest problem it has is that it's trying to milk drama from a foregone conclusion i don't think that there's any kind of doubt at all that sam is going to step up and become captain america that's how endgame ended that's how this series ended. So it's six episodes in order to reach a foregone conclusion, and that makes it relatively tough to kind of overinvest in it. But saying that again, like the two companion chronicles we've just talked about, kind of it's about the details. So it's about the, the 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 friendship that develops between uh, Bucky and Sam. It's about you know the Erzatz Captain America, uh, you know John Walker. It's uh, so. I, don't really like the Flag Smashers um I'm not sure they're terribly successful but I understand that this is unlike the (laughs) Companion Chronicles we've just talked about this is a a a series that really does need to have an active uh protagonist albeit I'm not certain that Pippi Longstocking was the one I would have necessarily chosen myself now saying that uh, it does kind of work but it's a bit kind of here's some random anarchists. They'll be the bad guys this time out. I don't know, I'm rambling, but I'm rambling because I think the series rambles a bit as well. I think it's interesting. I admire what it's trying to do. I wish, like my ability to talk about it, it had found a bit more focus, Um, but lacking that, I still think it's worth spending time with, even although it's it's definitely not a, a kind of perfect product in the end.
0: Yeah, I think it's messy for sure but there's so many great individual ideas and scenes in that mess.
1: Mm. And
0: I think it is like, it's thought provoking and it's interesting in different ways. I definitely agree about Sebastian Stan. I think he's the MVP of the show. Well, no, actually my MVP of the show is Wyatt Russell. I think he's so good as this very weird guy trying to live up to Captain America's shadow and failing to do so and bringing him into these sort of dark and strange directions I'm really interested in where that character goes from here on out. But yeah, I mean, he's one of like five different ongoing storylines and none of them feel like they get the proper screen time they deserve. And there's all these rumors about there being a cut storyline about a viral pandemic that they had to excise and reshoot around, which might have cleared some things up. I won't get too much into my conspiracy theorist on the show right now, but... Just the gist of it is that explains why episode five is so weird and tying things off. And then we have another episode after that and why Zemo seems to pop in and out at will, seemingly. But uh, yeah, so those major, I think, sort of stumbles and misgivings aside that might or might not have been out of their control. I think what we have is a series that was still entertaining to watch for six weeks and definitely had some stuff I really enjoyed. Uh, And yeah, I mean, next to Wyatt Russell and... To Sebastian Stan, I also a uh, much more smaller performance, but I don't feel that's boring about this because you almost certainly, if you've been online at all, have heard about this by now. Uh, Julia Lewis dreyfus popping up in yes. her new recurring role. Oh my God, she is such a perfect fit for the MCU. <laughs>
1: I can't tell you how happy I am that she's part of the MCU now. That's just such. That's just the best thing ever.
0: She is the exact right kind of. I can invest you in this and invest myself in this. But not take it too seriously and still pull off the one-liners like that kind of energy that ev- all of the actors aspire to, since that's like the overriding tone of this entire project. And she's just such a good hand at that; it's it's incredible. But yeah, it's I definitely did not regret watching it. Um, I think by the end of the year, it might be my least favorite of the shows. Give or take the next ones go, but I am super excited for Loki and even though WandaVision was ultimately disappointing I still found a lot of ambition to like in that so we'll see how that goes but yeah even at its worst it's still entertaining i think that is describes the MCU as a whole so yeah i would i wouldn't warn people away from it at all and i think it's an interesting recommendation for sure
1: I think the thing about it is that it and I think so far this is true of both Vision and uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier and we'll see what happens with, with Loki and uh, and the other sort of uh, MCU TV projects that are coming down the line but I think it's interesting in that it kind of gives Marvel the space to fail if you know what I mean which is mm-hmm. that neither like if I think if either Wondervision or Falcon and the Winter Soldier had been like big MCU movies they would be like maybe Age of Ultron sort of quality which is like yeah. like like like, I, I, like nothing about Sokovia works for me Sokovia is just a complete mm-hmm. dead it's another reason that Z, uh, Zemo doesn't really work either I find Sokovia incredibly difficult to care about and I don't think the MCU has ever successfully kind of landed that kind of investment uh, with all that kind of drama I think it needed to be somewhere uh, maybe real um, but uh, yeah, I think if I think having that space to kind of poke at ideas that aren't kind of like MCU uh, like main range obvious or aren't necessarily things that we comfortably like, you couldn't comfortably fit one division like as a Marvel movie. I don't mm-hmm. even although it's much more conventional. I don't. I think you would struggle to get Falcon and the Winter Soldier to fit as a a movie really or maybe a couple of movies again simply because it's marching towards a foregone conclusion but it, it's giving some space within that universe for things to um not always to be messy and messy is important Messy is good you know I, I, I particularly when it comes to mcu i'm sorry i promise i'll stop talking in a minute particularly when it comes to mcu i really appreciate the efforts to ground things in, in the real, so the fact that um, Sam has a family who are struggling financially, or the fact that life isn't easy just because you can strap on a costume and fly around the world or whatever. I think those things are important. It's one of the reasons I really love like, Spider-Man and the Spider-Man movies is because they're, um, there's a material reality to them. It's not just about you know unknowable gods wiping out half the universe, being stopped by you know philanthropic billionaires. It's about how people are affected, how that actually makes a difference to day to day life, and I, I really admire the fact that Falcon and the Winter Soldier is trying to say something about that. Again, not necessarily a hundred percent successfully, but at least it's engaging with ideas that we just don't get that often in in the MCU universe. Uh, you know, there are the main range movies or whatever. So things like that I like. I like the fact that it's messy, even although it means that it's a a, a less than perfect um, show. So. Fine, I'm done. I'll shut up now. Over to you, Kev. What are you recommending?
0: Oh, I, I do want to follow on just a little bit more though. I I oh, agree yeah, sure. with you. I like that it's messy, and we wouldn't have gotten scenes like the great Carl Lumley as this former American soldier who was experimented on, and like oh, I, he's I so think he's so great, isn't he? So this yes, he's so great. Those scenes are so great. My big point with Falcon Winter Soldier is it's not six episodes of that. (laughs) It really does just sort of pop in, have some thoughts about race in America and then pop out without actually integrating that in the rest of the show. But those are great scenes and we never would have gotten them in a movie. So I just want to say, yeah, I totally agree with that sort of line of thought. These TV shows, this chance to take these bigger swings, these chances to fail, but at least be a little more invasive and thought-provoking in what they try to bring about. And it's almost what holds both of them back is still having to be this product for everyone. Less so than the movies, but still trying to have a mass appeal. When WandaVision could have gotten really weird, and Doctor and Soldier could have gotten really incisive with its politics if they had a little longer leash. But what we still have is still much more interesting than I think you could give it credit for on paper. That said, unless you have more thoughts? Nope, all good. All right. I'm gonna move on to my recommendation. Um, so a, a few a few episodes ago, I recommended a Memory Called Empire, a modern queer space opera at the start of a big franchise. Today, I'm gonna to recommend another one, a modern queer space opera start of a big franchise. And when I finally get around to Charlie Jane Anders' new books, Victory of Dreaded and Death, expect me to complete Rule of Three. But for now, I am talking about Gideon the Ninth. I read this book and I was instantly in love. The characters are so interesting and funny. Um, It manages to sort of, world-building-wise, bridge a sort of epic, strange science fantasy along the lines of like a Dune or a Warhammer, where there's all these weird things going on in the margins, with characters that feel like a much more well-written CW or sci-fi show. Definitely in that uh, younger adult demographic, though the book is very adult, uh, don't get me wrong. But uh, if a CW show were to allow, like, swears and such, this would be what the characters would sort of act like. But in a good way, not uh, much more Legends of Tomorrow and much less Riverdale, if you get my drift. So uh, it's specifically about these eight houses of necromancers who serve this long-reigning god-emperor who has these sort of immortal aides called Lictors, and the emperor has now given a call to houses to pick a necromancer to become a new door and have immortality and serve under him. And so each house sends their best necromancer, most of them of a royal lineage, along with a cavalier who's their sort of bodyguard, attaché, what have you. Uh, the ninth house, the most disrespected of the house, is led by the very sinister and uh, kind of a prick Harrow. And her cavalier is the titular Gideon, who has tried to escape multiple times and uh, hates living there and hates Harrow's guts. But through various machinations, both on Harrow's parts and otherwise, they are stuck together and stuck in a big house with the other second through eighth houses. And they're trying to figure out the secrets of this sort of ritual to become immortal while something starts picking them off. So it's a little bit, like I said, a little bit of Dune and Warhammer, a little bit of CW show, a little bit of Agatha Christie on top of that. Uh, if you're familiar with the visual novel game Danganronpa, which is also about uh, young adults being trapped in a place and getting picked off one by one and solving those crimes, that's, that's giving me huge vibes of that. It's very much a show that, a book rather, that feels influenced by a lot of science fiction and fantasy that came beforehand a lot of sort of queerness, especially within fan fiction that is around now. And that sort of that it definitely, you can definitely tell this author spent time on Tumblr, but in a way that enriches her works and makes it feel much more modern rather than, I think, what you would expect when you I say that phrase and that leans into cliche. It feels so fresh and modern in a way I wasn't expecting. And I cannot, like, it's it's one of the most invigorating books I've read in a good while. it just gripped me from start to finish. It's such a good mystery. All of the mysteries have very satisfying resolutions and all of the characters, like you will just find such a great angle on them, whether or if you love them or you hate them or you love to hate them. It's so well thought through. It's so, and even with all the complicated concepts like A Memory Called Empire, it, it just goes down so smooth. It's so easy to follow. And that's just such a great trick of uh, Tamsin Muir's writing. So yes, getting the ninth. It's uh, the first book in a trilogy. The second book is out now. Third book's coming next year, um, and it is fantastic. I cannot wait to read those other two because this one is—it's something special. And if its slowly growing fan base is anything, I think this is going to be a big one to watch in terms of like science fiction fandom
1: fantastic thank you very much not for the first time when we've been doing these recommendations i have purchased it whilst you've been talking so <laughs> no, no, no. it's winging its way to my kindle even as we speak fantastic that sounds really cool i'm going to look forward to uh to getting stuck into that i i, I could do with uh, something new to read so I, i'm, I'm yeah. very much looking forward to, to to getting into it brilliant great yeah fantastic well i think we can uh, probably wrap it up there for this episode kev would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us
0: all right, you can find us uh, on email, talking who to you at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Talking Who To You. I am on Twitter at kevkozer K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can find more JG's writings at jgmccrory.scott. That dot scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us.
1: Fabulous, thank you. So here ends our extremely positive podcast so this has been lovely Um, we are going to be leaving Doctor Who next week we are going to be returning to the world of Star Trek so we are going to be covering Star Trek's four that would be the voyage home Star Trek five the universally admired the final frontier (laughs) and Star Trek six the undiscovered country so that's what we're going to be nattering about next week and as always we hope you're going to join us for it but until then keep talking